Yeah, I'll grab you one. Good evening, everyone. We're waiting on one commissioner, so let's give her a minute or two and then we will get started. Thank you.
I say let's roll. We are missing one commissioner and hopefully she joins us. But uh, with that, I'd like to welcome everybody to the regularly scheduled planning commission meeting for Wednesday, November 9th. Madam Clerk, please call the roll. Commissioner Abbey? Here. Commissioner Davis? Absent. Commissioner Farkas? Here. Commissioner McCarty? Here. Commissioner Zucker? Here. Vice Chair Legerquist? Here. Chair Condon? I'm here. Thank you. Okay, let's move to public communications. This is the time set aside during the committee meetings for members of the public to address the committee on planning related business other than what's scheduled on the agenda tonight. Madam Clerk, do we have any speakers? Chair Condon, we have no public speakers. Okay, very good. Thank you. Let's move on then to our formal items. The first one, Project 220201, the Levis Park Development Agreement for the Olivas Park Specific Plan Area. Staff, do we have a presentation tonight? Yes, we do. Thank you. Um, first of all, I'd like to say I'm glad to be back with you all. It's been um, well, almost a year, I guess. Um, so um, uh, Miles, who you guys have, have been working with, he's on vacation this week. So I would have been filling in anyway and then um, planning, I guess, saw fit to have me present or maybe I decided to present while I was here anyway. So I get double duty. Um, so I'm going to run over the, uh, the, some highlights for the Olivas Park specific plan development agreement. And so if you bear with me, it shouldn't take too long, but I want to summarize some of the high points for you. Next slide, please. I know we're all familiar with where the specific plan area is located. It's the southeastern terminus of the city next to the Santa Clara River and the 101 freeway. It's 139 acres total, mostly located in a flood zone. 73 and a half of those acres are developable uh, once the levee and roadway are constructed. And it's important to note that the Olivas Park specific plan area does not include the auto center specific plan area, which is uh, designated as, in, as orange on this map. Next slide, please. Just to give you a little background, this project has been around for quite some time. Back in the 80s, the extension of the Levis Park Drive was named as one of the 22 eligible projects for funding through the transportation, or I'm sorry, the traffic mitigation fund. And uh, so in 2005, the economic development strategized strategy prioritized the Levis Park Drive and uh, named it as part of Focus Area 1. I know it's a, a term that was used uh, way back as far as um, identifying where the priorities should be as uh, for, for economic development areas. So this, uh, this location has been, uh, has been the focus of uh, uh, much attention over the years. In 2014, the City Council certified the Environmental Impact Report for the Olivas Park Extension Project. A year later, the City acquired the Montavo Community Sanitation District and demolished that facility, taking over that, um, those services for the, that community. Uh, in 2019, the City Council adopted the uh, Olivas Park Specific Plan. Some of you may have been on the commission back then. It was one of the first projects that I worked on with Peter. We worked, uh, I think, on a weekend or on an off day to get that thing done. Um, but as, as a result of that specific plan, that specific plan uh, required that the specifics of the infrastructure completion would be memorialized in a development agreement. 
And uh, essentially, this development agreement is unique in the, in the it's not your traditional development agreement uh, because most of it relates to the infrastructure and how the roadway and the levee would be completed, construct, constructed, who would fund and pay for those projects and manage those projects. Uh, in 2021, then, in, in furtherance of the specific plan, staff worked with the property owners to, uh, to work through the terms, uh, uh, the creation of some deal points uh, that the parties could agree on that would be consistent with the specific plan. And um, the staff took those deal points that had been kind of worked through uh, with the, the property owners, took that to city council around this time last year just to get council's blessing on the general concepts of the development agreement. Uh, and the council blessed those concepts. And so for the last year, uh, we've been working with the developers to finalize the, the actual language of the development agreement, work out through some of the, work through some of the, the fine uh, points in the, in the um, infrastructure uh, project. And uh, we'll be bringing it back uh, to the city council ultimately after tonight. Next slide, please. So for those of you that weren't here in 2019, which is most of you, the Olivas Park specific plan provides a basic land use plan and a streamlined review process for future development. And it was intended to be very flexible because it, is, it was uncertain at the time what the eventual mix of uses would ultimately be. And um, again, in furtherance of this concept of focus area one and the, the importance of allowing this project to develop and to provide um, potential um, jobs and resources for the city, it was intentionally uh, very flexible. One thing that it did do though, if, you're, if you've had the opportunity to look through it, is it memorialized the responsibilities of the city and the property owners as it relates to the important public improvements. For example, the city would be responsible for funding the road. The property owners would be responsible for funding the levy. And then again, as I mentioned, the specific plan said that the specifics of the, the infrastructure agreement would be worked out in a development agreement. Next slide. So generally, I know we don't see a lot of development agreements come through um, uh, this commission, uh, but generally, Development agreements are just essentially legally binding contracts between the city and developers. And it's a mutual agreement, so the city cannot force the property owners to agree to the terms. If there's no agreement, like any other contract, there's no agreement. Um, and But what, what it does, though, is typically a development agreement, uh, uh, in, in a development agreement, the developers will commit to making certain improvements providing some benefit to the city. And the exchange, in exchange for that, the developer gets some certainty, right? Because they are, they're committing to expend a lot of money on a particular um, area, building it out. And they want to know that if they're gonna commit, and they're gonna be obligated to commit uh, those resources in that time to build that out, that they have some certainty that they'll be able to develop what, what the plan is. And so that's one of the, one of the typical terms of a development agreement. And as I mentioned, it, uh, development agreements typically require the develop, developer to provide some proportionate benefits to the city. Next slide. So there's this balancing act. And in this particular case, it was important to, to make sure that the development agreement did provide uh, that balancing. And so on the public side, 
it allowed the city-owned property to be utilized for public need. So there are a couple of parcels that the city owns uh, that were part of the former uh, Montavo uh, facility. And so that property is in the floodplain, was basically unusable. And so this would allow there to be uh, a value added to those parcels uh, for the city's benefit. And of course, as focus area one, the city had, was very interested in, in the potential for future sales and property tax generation. And that, that would fulfill its goals that the council 30 years established. It would improve local traffic circulation because right now Johnson Drive essentially terminates at the auto center and then Olivas Park doesn't pick up until the other side. So this would allow for the construction of a road that connect those, those two pieces, uh, improve the circulation, and uh, that roadway would, would not be feasible without the levy. So the city, without this project, this development agreement, the city would be forced to fund all of the improvements if it weren't for the developer willing, being willing to do that. And then, uh, of course, as you know, uh, the city owns relatively small amount of property there. So in order to be able to build the roadway, the city would have to go out and acquire the, the property to build the roadway, uh, upon which to build the, the roadway. But in this case, the developer, developers, as part of the development agreement, have agreed to dedicate the land necessary for the, the roadway, which includes the, the bike lane and um, all of the other necessary um, land for the, for the, um, the right-of-way. They'll dedicate that to uh, no cost to the city. In exchange for those public benefits, the property owners will receive valuable access to new development, right, because they have all these acres that can't be developed without um, the levy. So they will gain access to some new development there. They will have the improved circulation for the auto center and the areas that are being developed in the Olivas Park specific plan. Uh, it will raise property out of the undevelopable property, increasing the value of that property. And then they will be getting that the roadway con constructed by the city and uh, they won't have the need to construct that. So there's there's this balancing between what the public receives and what the property owner benefits uh, receives. Next slide, please. So I'm just gonna go briefly over the terms of the deal points that were in the uh, memorialized in the development agreement. Uh, these were outlined in, this, in the staff report, so I'm not gonna spend a long time on it, but uh, the first one, of course, is the term of the agreement. And, uh, the agreement will terminate 10 years after city council approves the development agreement or five years after the LOMAR or the final letter of map revision is approved by FEMA, whichever is later. So it could last for as long as 15 years. It's important to note though that uh, later we'll talk about some fee and regulatory locks. Uh, those locks have their own uh, unique timeframes. So that the 15 year period doesn't necessarily apply to those to those parts of the agreement. It just generally applies to the general benefits and obligations of the development agreement. Uh, next slide, please. The project improvements include the, the roadway and incidental improvements like landscaping and street lights and traffic signals and sidewalks. The city owned utilities, the levy and the bike path. And if you remember uh, when the city council approved the specific plan, one of the, the big points that came out of that was uh, the creation of a um, um, I almost called it a phase one, a class one bike lane. And so that is part of the project. And Mr. Shade from Public Works can answer more questions if there are about what that will look like. 
uh, but the, the class one bike path is included in the project. Next slide, please. As I mentioned, the, the development agreement is really an infrastructure agreement, and so it provides for who's going to do what. The city will be responsible for bidding and designing and managing the construction of both the roadway and the levy as one project, and will share certain project-related costs with the property owners. Next slide. As I mentioned, the property owners have committed to dedicate the land necessary to build the roadway and the levy at no cost to the city. Next slide. For those of you that are involved or have familiarity with construction projects, you know that uh, what is originally bid out or bid typically gets changed as the project gets constructed because there are surprises, things that weren't known, and, and delays. And so uh, under the um, development agreement, uh, it was important that the city have the ability to approve or deny those change orders. That the city public works department is skilled in, in reviewing those and approving those. Uh, but of course, the property owners have the obligation to pay the, for those change orders related to the levy. And so there was some concern that they uh, wouldn't have a say in how those change orders would, whether they would be approved or not, um, since the city was making the decision and they were gonna be footing the bill. Um, so the city agreed to share those change orders with the property owners for their input before the decision was made. Next slide. Uh, there is, the project does include a large drainage basin, which will be constructed as part of the project uh, to manage water from the extension, but also to, for, uh, to, to manage some water for some other properties uh, in, in the vicinity of the levy. Next, um, next slide, please. So as I mentioned earlier, the specific plan required the city to fund the, the roadway and incidental improvements and the developer to fund the levy. So in general terms, the development agreement carries that forward. Uh, there, there was also some specifics to work out as far as uh, the, the bidding process, who would manage that, what kind of, uh, how would the developers pay for the construction of the, of the project and so on. So the development agreement uh, provides the specifics for how that will be worked, uh, worked through. Uh, but again, the city is responsible for the roadway, the property owners for the levy. Next slide. As you probably know, that traffic mitigation is a part of most projects. Most projects are required to pay this fund, which is set up by ordinance through the city. And so originally, when, when this went to the city council uh, for the, the conceptual discussion, uh, we had proposed a and had agreed on a credit that the, the property owners would receive a credit towards future mitigation fees that they have to pay when, they, when the Olivas Park specific plan area starts to develop. Uh, over, over the time of uh, refining the, the agreement, um, that was revised a bit, and um, so uh, it's important to note that the city uh, will be using all of what TMF funds are available to cover uh, the costs of the, the roadway, and if there are any funds left over as after the city is made whole, the developers will be entitled to receive a reimbursement of some of their traffic mitigation fees that are paid. Uh, next slide, please. As I mentioned, there are, uh, in number nine and number 10, deal with a fee lock and a regulatory lock. And they both, they basically both have the same provision, which uh, allows for um, some consistency for them once the, 
uh, LOMAR is approved by FEMA. And once that occurs, then for the next four years, the, the developer will, developers will be able to move forward with their projects without the concern of any new instituted fees or uh, regulations after that point. So uh, anything that happens up until uh, the LOMAR is approved, then they would, they would apply to them, but anything after that for four years uh, would not. And we noted for the council uh, that we, you know, we know we're in the general plan update, and there might be some new regulations and related fees that come out of that. And uh, so we wanted to make sure it was clear to the council that if this were approved, this term, uh, these terms, that that would mean that they wouldn't be uh, subject to those changes, assuming that it fit within the time frame. Uh, next slide. And then this is the, uh, the regula <coughs> excuse me, regulatory lock portion. Uh, the next slide, please, number 11. Um, this was this term is kind of a minor term, but I think it was important because the, the Ventura County Watershed Protection District is the one that applies for the LOMAR after the project is completed. And so it was important that, that to the city that the developers be encouraged to uh, do what they needed to do to allow the watershed district to do what it needed to do. Uh, so we, we provided... Um, some time frames for the owner to provide the information that's needed for the watershed protection district to complete what they need to do to get the LOMAR done because that obviously triggers um, certain deadlines in the development agreement and also um, encourages the project to move forward. Again, going back to focus area one. Next slide. Water, of course, is a topic that has to be discussed and so the development agreement just assures um, reassures that the development will comply with the city's net zero policy. So there's, there's no exceptions being made here. Uh, water will be available for the project unless certain drought conditions occur, as outlined in the DA. Next slide. The property owners uh, will fund the maintenance of the extension and incidental improvements um, through and an end of the levy through uh, the annual property tax assessment. So a district will be set up to, to fund those. Next slide. Given the, the current financial landscape, the costs, the acceleration of costs for construction, there was a lot of concern about, um, on, especially on the developer side, of being committed to the project without being able to assure that they, uh, it, it was feasible to do so. And uh, there's ob obviously estimates of what the, the levy might cost, but when that bidding comes in, if the, if the cost was much more than was anticipated and makes it infeasible, uh, the develop, developer, developers wanted to ensure that they would have the opportunity to kind of back out of the project. And so a, a term was added that would allow both the city and the property owners to, to exit, to terminate the, the, um, the agreement, and, um, and stop the project if it was no longer feasible. And then the final one is just an indemnity, of course. This is for the lawyers in the audience who want to make sure that it was clear who would bear the responsibility um, of what, if there was a, a liability claim for the levy or the roadway, it needed to be clear who would be responsible for that. So there's some language in there. So the staff's recommendation is, next slide please. I think I forget to skip a slide, I apologize. I've got my independent slides here, all right. Um, that the city council, that the, the, the planning commission recommended the city council that they approve the development agreement. Uh, next slide. 
There are certain findings that are outlined in the resolution. Uh, the first one is that the development agreement is consistent with the objective policies, general land uses, and programs of the general plan and the Levis Park specific plan. And as I mentioned, uh, this was uh, directly uh, required as, um, as, as a term of the specific plan. So this is just executing what was essentially outlined in the specific plan. The land uses authorized and regulations prescribed for the development agreement are compatible with the zoning and regulated regulations applicable to the property. Again, the development agreement is just implementing the, the terms of the specific plan. It doesn't outline any zoning or anything different than what was already approved by, this, by the Planning Commission and the City Council um, and the specific plan. Uh, number three, the development agreement conforms with public convenience and general welfare. Uh, this is benefit that provides not only a benefit to the developers, but it provides a benefit to the city and to the residents. Uh, it helps the circulation uh, in the area and, and potentially increases revenues for the city and uh, more jobs. Um, number four, approval of the DA will not be detrimental to the health, safety, and general welfare. Since adequate provisions have been made in previous city approvals to provide for necessary and desirable improvements, which are incorporated, and the specific plan went through an environmental analysis, uh, there was an addendum that was approved that considered all of the impacts of the development, uh, and so there's, uh, there's no, been nothing identifying any detriment to health, safety, or general, general welfare, and this DA is consistent with the um, general plan and the uh, Levis Park specific plan. Uh, the next one, approval of the DA will not adversely affect the orderly develop, development of the subject or surrounding property or the preservation of area-wide property values, but will rather enhance, enhance them by encouraging planned growth. And again, uh, this has been planned for decades, this development of this project. It's part of Focus Area 1. And um, as I've mentioned, uh, the, this property is undevelopable. It's, it's not benefiting the developers, not benefiting the city without the construction of the levee and the roadway. So um, both of these are part of the orderly development of the subject, which has been planned and anticipated for years. And then lastly, that the development agreement has been accomplished pursuant to government code and the municipal code, both of which talk about noticed hearings and, and that. So uh, we have complied with this, submitted the notice for the public benefit, and so this is in compliant. The development agreement is consistent with state and local law. Next slide. Um, so that's it. Um, I'm available to answer any questions. We also have Peter Howell from BB&K who was uh, instrumental in, in drafting the actual text of the language. We also have Peter Shade here who represents Public Works. He's a city engineer and uh, he can answer any questions um, that, might be, um, that you might have. Incidentally, before he came here, he was working with the Watershed District. So he has, he has perspective from both sides of this project. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Um, Commissioners, do we, oh hi, Commissioner Davis. Welcome. Uh, do we have questions for Andy or staff? Please, Commissioner. Okay, Andy, um, just for clarification, in the staff report under the general terms and the duration of terms in the agreement, um, that is 10 years and then it's got five years um, after the Lomer's approved. And then as we get into, that's under number one on page two, and then as we get into the fee locks um, for nine and 10 and the regulatory lock, those are four years. Can you explain the method of your madness why you've got five and then four? The, uh, I think the term uh, the, of the agreement was an easy term to agree on. 
I think it satisfied both the city's needs and the developer's needs. Uh, there was a bit more conversation about the regulatory and locks, and so we were able to come up with a, a year, four years, uh, that we that would work for both sides. So that's why there's that they're why they're different there. Thank you, Commissioner Davis. Related to that same question, how long does it typically take for the Lomar to go pass through? Because the, the second, because you said four years after that, that was a question. That would be a question for Peter. Yes, uh, in order to apply for the Lomar, you need to um, complete the project and do some additional uh, studies, do, as built the plan, and so on. Usually, there it's applied for probably three to six months after construction is complete, and then it can take um, six to six to eighteen months to for FEMA to approve that. So it's a little more complicated than a normal LOMAR because it's a levy, and um, post-Hurricane Katrina, FEMA is very sensitive to levies, so they, they give it a lot more scrutiny than just um, you know channel projects that remove areas from floodplain. So, um, so yeah, it's probably after construction, I would think probably um, a year to two and a half years to get that LOMAR completed. That's why you said it could be like 15 years because it could take like, it could take three to five years to get through permitting and construction and then the potentially a year and a half or so after that. Yeah, it was, in, we, we did a calculation and kind of determined how long we thought things might take and that's where we ended up with the 15 years. Obviously the city's interest is to, to make that period as short a period of time as possible. Uh, but we also understand that there has to be a benefit to the developers and it has to be practical. We don't want a development agreement that expires prematurely. So we, we try to factor all of that into to it and give some flexibility if circumstances change. Commissioner Farkas, please. On that note, has the CLOMER been applied for, the, the, the start of this? Because I've, I've worked the, on other cases in the county. Um, I've worked on conditional letter of map revisions and then the final and it's been five six years to get through the process with army corps and with fema so has that process at least been started yes the clomar has been issued it did take quite a while <laughs> it was a joint clomar between that watershed conducted uh, both for this levy and the levy along the landfills on the uh, south side of the river in oxnard thank you Commissioner Zucker. Got a, got a couple questions. Yeah. Um, uh, first, you mentioned kind of some land that's currently owned by the city that was formerly the Montalvo kind of waste, wastewater plant. Um, do you think you show on the map kind of where that land is or what, um, is, it, is it the whole property or is it just a portion? Are you able, Peter, to, to eyeball that for Commissioner Zucker from the map? Can you ask the question again? I'm sorry. Uh, the the, the city-owned land, uh, kind of where is it on that map to be looked at? Yeah, that's the um, uh, 14, uh, label C in 14, that, that triangle. Okay, got it. And so I guess, so part of that is is becoming kind of, I guess, private use, but but part of it is staying, or the open space is presumably kind of public use, so it's like a park space on the levee or something? Well, um, 
within the levy, there's a small part of that that that's that will continue to be owned by the city until other uses are determined. The area that's in green um, is basically on the river side of the levy, so it won't. Um, except except for the areas that have the ponds that um, that that uh, Mr. Hagelin mentioned for water quality purposes, um, you know there won't won't be any other beneficial uses for that property. Got it. Okay. So that the the OS open space that just means that it's not developed land. It's not necessarily going to be you know I mean in some communities a levy you know is it's a levy but also people go and you know, hang out there, it's almost like a green space, you know, kind of public public access, is that? Well, it's not, it's not a, a park, right. so it's not public access in that sense. Okay. Um, and my, my second question is is uh, around the, the kind of cost of some of the infrastructure. Um, do, were you saying that the the TMF funds are, are kind of expected to, to pay for the entire cost of the city side of the infrastructure, or is that part of it? Yes, uh, there's the city's been collecting those funds for years, and so um, based on estimates, as I understand it, Peter can correct me if I'm wrong, but based on estimates we have for what the project could can cost for the roadway, there should be enough TMF funds to cover those. If if there are not enough funds, then future funds that are collected will be used to make the city whole, as I mentioned. Right. And then and then after that, after that, the developers collecting. would be entitled to receive some reimbursement of fees okay. that they paid. But there's essentially no loss to the city's general funds or, or capital improvement funds of, of any of the infrastructure or pieces. Of it's not intended to have any um, financial impact to the city general fund. Great. Um, my last question is just around the, the the class one bike trail. Um, yeah, I appreciate that that you mentioned that's part of the project because I know that was an important part of our discussion when this came to us at the, the you know many of our first meeting on the on the planning commission. Um, and you know, and I know that was something many members of the public were were uh, interested. Well, I noticed in the in the staff report, it, it repeatedly refers to a bike path, but in the development agreement, it says there's only one mention. It says bike lanes, um, you know, and there's no specificity. You know, I take colloquially like bike path to mean a class one and bike lane to mean a class two, but um, but I, I'm I'm curious. You know, I mean if if we wanted to specify that in the development agreement, would that mean like reopening negotiations and, you know, or is that something we could kind of make a small wording change there? And I would assume since the city's the one paying for the bike bike path that the developer would be amenable to that. I mean, it seems like it's no skin off their back, right? But yeah, we, could, we could make revision to the development agreement to clarify that. Mr. Shade can answer. I know that they are quite a ways down on the design, almost completed. And, and you want to provide a little bit of background on what the design of the roadway includes? Yeah, so the, on the south side of the road, south of the, of the curb, there's a 10-foot wide uh, class one bike path. And then within the curb line, there'll be an eight-foot class two bike lane on both sides of the road. So the anticipation is, is that we might have commuters that would want to stay on the road, uh, but that people that might want to travel more leisurely, you might want to take the class one bike path. And that is in the design of the road already. So um, you're right, the, the city will be paying for that. So in, in a global sense, it's covered because it's part of the design of the road. And, and I'm sorry, so is it, 
I was I couldn't quite understand. Is it a is it a class one that then turns into a class two for a second, or is there a class one parallel to a class two, and people can kind of choose which one they want depending if they want to take a shortcut? The, so. the class one is a south of the curb, so it's it's on it's outside the roadway, and then the class two would be on both sides of the road within the curb line. Got it. But they're, they're, they're both going the same. So they're parallel. Yes, they are parallel. Okay. So it's basically you've got an option in either. It's not, right. it's not the kind of part of it is class one and part of it is class two. Right, Great. correct. Okay. That's helpful. Um, that's, that's all my questions. Thank you. Just a point of reference. I'm being told that um, our microphones are not sensitive enough for those watching on TV. So please get close and make sure you're heard. Uh, Commissioner McCarty. Just to further clarify um, your answer to Commissioner Zucker's last question, so the Class 1 bike path runs the entire length of the project? Yes, the entire length of the Levis Park Drive extension has a Class 1 bike path. Okay, and is the plan such that it, it uh, hooks up with Johnson Drive? At this point, there won't be any connections on either side. Um, to note, their Public Works is uh, currently completing an active transportation plan, and and so there will be obviously information in that about about how you know how those connections will be made later on. But um, but the improvements that are contemplated within the development agreement and the extension are only within the specific plan. Okay, thank you. Other questions? Commissioner Abbey. Um, I'm very visual, and uh, so I know that you verbally described it, and could you bring up the uh, Levis Park specific plan map again on the screen? Could you um, could you trace where the class one bike path is, and then you said there's a class two that's parallel, or yeah, the class one will pick up right here. This is, of course, the in the the mustard colors, the levee, and then it will transition to a flood wall along here. This is the end of beginning of the extension here on the west side. It will parallel the road all the way around. And it will terminate right about um, where the on off ramp is to the um, from the 101 freeway, okay. and then the class two, likewise, would pick up on both sides of the road, um, on on the uh, really the south side of the railroad crossing, and then run parallel within the road, all the way through the, the roadway extension. Okay, and then how much of a, how many foot separation is the class one from the roadway? I think it's about uh, the the striping will be about a foot from the curb. Is the design that I've seen, so it, it'll it'll be apart from the road. Okay, all right, thank you. Okay, I have a few questions. I don't know a lot about levees, but uh, if you've been watching the news the past year or two, flooding has become a worldwide problem. 
uh, what we're talking about here is building a levee and a flood wall that will render 70 plus acres usable now. And we don't know what those uses ultimately will be. They could be office, they could be retail, they could be anything. Um, can you describe for us uh, a little bit more about what a levy looks and is constructed of and how it is maintained and things of that sort, please? Well, in this case, the levy along the river will be an earthen levy. It, uh, because of the velocity in the Santa Clara River, it will be armed, it will be armored with rock riprap, so rock riprap probably a 24 inch diameter rock and that will extend down uh, below the, uh, the Earth's surface, towed down in, in case the river comes up against the levee. Uh, the top of the road will be uh, a based road on top of the levee, and that will be used for maintenance and, and flood fighting if needed. Um, the backside of the levee will just be earthen, and it will be maintained um, without any vegetation per FEMA requirements. Uh, the uh, the flood wall uh, will that will run runs along uh, the uh, property line near the golf course will just be a uh, a block uh, CMU block wall flood wall uh, that'll be filled with concrete and reinforcement and that'll run along the property line um, the kind of maintenance that you'd expect to do would be to be vegetation maintenance primarily during the dry season it over a number of year period, there might be um, addition or and re-rolling of the CMB. Um, there also will be a, a flood gate that will cross um, the Olivas Park Drive extension, and that will be an automatic flood gate that will also be able to be lifted manually under flood conditions that require it to be raised, um, and that that ultimately then connects into the railroad embankment across Moon Ditch. So um, so it kind of wraps around, if you will, the developed area that's planned. Uh, those features are similar to what uh, you can see along the Ventura River. If you go up the avenue and there's earthen and then there's a gate near uh, one of the plants up there. Uh, similar, yes. Okay. And are those built to 100-year flood specificities or 500-year? Yes. Yeah, they're, they're built to FEMA standards, a national standard, 100-year plus three foot of freeboard, uh, three and a half feet at the upstream end of the levee. Okay. So it's a, it meets the national standards. All right. Very good. Any other questions? Commissioner McCarty? Another follow-up question regarding the levee. Um, when this project was presented to city council uh, about three years ago now, there was a very interesting presentation regarding public use, public access and public use of the levy itself, uh, wildlife observation, et cetera. Will there, is there planned to be pu public access to the levy? There, there is a plan eventually that there'll be public access. We have an agreement with watershed protection for the maintenance of the levy that has to be modified to include uh, the kind of access that we're talking about it would be uh, primarily expected to be pedestrian access uh, as the bike one or class one bike path is along the roadway um, that has not been uh, you know that that's not part of the project in the sense that there'll be any improvements done um, but that is the plan in the future yes Thank you. 
Vice Chair Lagerquist. Thanks. Um, I think my questions are mostly for Mr. Hegland. Um, so once the levy is constructed, who will own and maintain the levy? Is that that it's being transferred, or how does that work? It will be owned and, and maintained by the Watershed Protection District. Okay. Um, and then, I'm sorry, could you walk me through one more time just the the, um, the feedlock, just the chronologically how all the different years work, like when the agreement expires and things like that? Could we um, pull that slide up? It's, um, let's say the feedlock slide 15. So the, the feedlock... Uh, does not, and the same was true for the regulatory lock, doesn't, up, doesn't begin to apply until um, the development agreement is approved. It begins to apply, I'm sorry, when the development agreement is approved until four years after the LOMAR is approved by FEMA. So if the council approves the development agreement, there, there will, no new fees or regulations will apply to the project um, until four years after the LOMAR is approved. Does the development agreement expire ever? I mean, could we could this thing be? Could we have a development agreement? I think some others were alluding to this, and we get into a, a situation where there's a, a large amount of time between that and the LOMAR approval. And and so, I mean, my concern is, you know, does anything have to be reviewed if that span of time gets too long? The the term of the agreement is designed the way it's drafted is designed to accommodate that because the, the term lasts for um, 10 years after the approval or five years after LOMAR is approved. So it would last at least five years, so an extra year beyond the, the fee and reg locks. Okay. Thank you. Were there more questions over here? No? All right. If there's no further questions, I see that the developer is here. Would you like to make a statement? of any sort before I open the public hearing? Is now the appropriate time to do this? Mr. Hofer, no? Okay, very good. Uh, one more question before we go. Please. Can you ask the question again? I couldn't quite hear you. All right. The stormwater retention basins, where are those planned? They're, I, I don't they're going to be uh, basically where the ponds for the uh, Montalvo Sanitary District were. So we're oh, okay. taking advantage of the ponds that were there before, um, for the most part. Were those excavated or? Yes. Okay. Thanks. There, there may be improvements to them, but that's generally the location. Commissioner Zucker. One more quick question. Uh, the, the city owned land, that number number 14, it's that, that whole section there, right? So is, is that all going to be owned by the developer ultimately or the city or is it kind of split along the, the levy with the top part being private and the bottom part being retained by the city? You're referring to the, the land the city owns? That's right. So currently the city retains that land. Under so the even though the top part is, is slated for development, mixed use, the city still will own that land even even as it'll be, yeah, it'll be it'll then, be. Then the city could lease it to whoever, whatever developer member. Right, lease. it'll be two separate parcels. We would get the rent for or whatever whatever the use is correct. Or, 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 or. 
Okay. With no further questions, I'd like to open the public hearing. Madam Clerk, do we have public speakers on this item? Chair Condon, we have no public speakers. All right, very good. Then I will summarily close the public hearing. Let's move to deliberation. By the way, is there any ex parte communications that anyone wishes to report? No? Okay, very good. Commissioner McCarty, did you have a comment? Um, no, but I was going to initiate the, uh, the discussion with a couple more questions, if that's all right. Please. Okay. But I do have specific questions about the development agreement itself. Um, page 3 in <clears throat> Recital H, <clears throat> it discusses when the city was incorporated and how the city charter was approved by the voters in 1932. Um, I get two questions. Is there a reason that's part of the development agreement and does it serve a purpose? If, it, if that recital doesn't serve a purpose, I'd recommend striking it. It, it, it. All it says is the city was incorporated on March 10th, 1866 and the city charter was approved by the voters on January 7th, 1932 and has been amended by the voters from time to time thereafter. I don't see the reason for that as being part of the uh, development agreement. I think it's just establishing that the next uh, recital I talks about the property owners and kind of defines who they are. Um, so I think it's just defining the city as one of the parties and explaining its construction through its city charter and then the next one defines the, the, uh, the property owner parties. Okay, I'll take your word for that. Um, page six of the development agreement uh, it looks like it's section 2.6, and there are subsections A through F. In the paragraph following subsections A through F, it says, the reason that items A through G are excluded from the definition of existing land use regulations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there are items A through F listed, but then a reference to A through G so that might just be a typo unless there's a, a, a line item G that's missing. We were just testing your proofreading skills. Okay. And you passed. Okay. We'll, we'll clear, clean that up. Thank you for bringing okay. that to our attention. Um, page 12 of the development agreement regarding public bidding. So the way I read this bidding clause is that <clears throat> it's split up into two separate projects. The extension project and the levy project. So the projects are bid separately. However, the way I read it is, the winner cannot be two separate firms. It'll be the single firm whose combined two bids uh, are, uh, amount to the lowest sum. Am I reading that correctly? I'll take a stab at that, and then Peter Howell, the, the, the attorney who drafted it, can, can mic in. I believe the two parts of the project will be bid as one project. Is my understanding. Uh, what's what section of ten point two? What language were you referring 12, to? Section ten point two. It says the lowest responsible bidder will be determined by the city based upon the lowest combined bid amounts of the two projects. So what that means to me is the city, the city may not get necessarily get the best deal. There could be a low bid on the levy by one party and a low bid on the extension by another party. But those bids 
may not be accepted or uh, approved because the combined bids of those two parties may not be the lowest overall. Is that is my quest is my question and concern clear? I understand it. Peter, do you have anything to add to that? Yes, so the, the entire project will be bid as one contract. It will have two schedules, so which is not uncommon in public contracts where you'll have we'll have a set of bid items that will be for the road and a set of bid items that will be for the levy. And then the low bidder will be determined based on the addition of both schedules. So if you looked at at uh, the road or the levy individually and then compared just those bid items to different bidders, it's possible that you could come up with, um, with, with different bidders being low for the two different parts. But it's, it's, it's probably unlikely and frankly, if we were to bid them and build them as separate projects, we would lose economy scale that should make this project cheaper to be bid as one. Okay. Understand, thank you. Um, page 22, uh, section 20, periodic review of compliance with agreement. Under the city compliance review, it says the city shall review this agreement at least once during every 12 month period from the effective date of the agreement. So that means the agreement will be reviewed annually on an, on an ongoing basis. So my, my question is, by what mechanism is the annual review triggered? In other words, how is it on somebody's radar screen or somebody's job description to perform that annual review? That's a good question. I'm not sure if, um, if that's housed with community development. Uh, community development I get, would Keeps track, of, keeps track of the development agreements and, and, and brings that annual review. And I believe that's part of our annual, uh, the items we typically bring back to Planning Commission for the review, all of the development agreements. Okay. Um, on page 24, section 22.3, uh, it talks about owner and each individual owner for itself, its successors, hereby releases the city, its officers, agents, et cetera, from claims, demands, actions. And it goes on to invoke the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution. Um, I'm trying to figure out how that figures into the development agreement. Is, is it the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment that's being ref referred to here? Is, is Let me get Peter. Is Peter Howell available? Mr. Howell, you are a panelist and have com uh, control of your mic and camera. Thank you. Yeah, I believe that's referring to the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. The, the taking clause? Yeah. Correct. Okay. okay. Um, all right. I, it, it was my understanding that the Fifth Amendment is, is mostly uh, applicable to the federal government, and it's the 14th Amendment that has to do with, it's with such matters uh, with the state governments. Are, do you know specifically about that? The difference between the Fifth Amendment and the, and the 14th Amendment in these affairs? 
you're correct that the Fifth Amendment applies to the, the federal government, but that's the federal takings clause. So if you have a uh, inverse condemnation or a claim that can be brought either under the uh, Fifth Amendment of the federal constitution or the California constitution. Okay, so so that that applies to the federal government. Does it does it is it applicable in this case? Yes, you could bring a, a Fifth Amendment takings clause against a state government that takes or or a um, it, it subset of the state government that takes your property. That's correct. Okay, thank you. A um, couple more questions um, on the on the. Signature page of the development agreement, page 36. Um, well, all of the signatories to the agreement had previously been listed, named in the development agreement itself, um, the three owners of the land parcels. Um, but on the final page, it lists the name of Paul B. Hoford III whose name doesn't previously appear any, anywhere in the document. And I'm curious, what is Mr. Paul Hofer's role in this agreement, as opposed to John Hofer, who's listed as the owner? My understanding, and Mr. Hofer's in the audience, he can explain this, but I, my understanding is that they are the, the, the members who have authorization to sign on behalf of the LLC. And so um, Paul Hofer has that authority. Under the under the management agreement of the LLC. Okay, thank you. And finally, um, we mentioned before the exit ramp option by which either party can uh, void the uh, the development agreement if costs aren't what are, what are expected. Um, so, if the exit ramp option is used to void the agreement. Conceptually, what then happens to this parcel of land? It remains fallow, so to speak? And well, the, the specific plan would still be in place, so that wouldn't change. Um, it would just relieve the city uh, of any um, commitments to fee locks or regulation locks. That would all go away. And essentially, we could start the process over at some point in the future. Okay, start, essentially start all over. Correct, with okay. the development agreement. Okay, good, thank you. No further questions. Excellent cross-examination. <clears throat> all right, we've reached the deliberation stage. Do we have uh, comments or uh, motions that we'd like to discuss? Commissioner Farkas, I see you. I don't have a comment, but I'm willing to make a motion to right. approve this with that comment. Um, with the correction that um, Commissioner McCarty, since he's so good at finding finding those um, those edits. I'm sorry, which correction in particular were that we was discussing? A through G. Or oh yes, that's right. That's section section two point six. Correct. Okay. It should be yeah A through F Duly instead noted. of A Very through good. G. So. Do we have a second to that motion? Sorry, Commissioner Farkas, if we could also add with the revised exhibits that were included in the supplemental packet. With the revised exhibits that were included in the supplemental That's packet. a friendly, friendly am amendment, I see. Okay, do we have a second to this, please? Okay, Commissioner Davis seconds. Uh, more discussion or deliberation? All right. Madam Clerk, would you please take the roll? 
Commissioner Abbey? Yes. Commissioner Davis? Yes. Commissioner Farkas? Yes. Commissioner McCarty? Yes. Commissioner Zucker? Yes. Vice Chair Lagerquist? Yes. Chair Comden? Yes. That motion carries. Very good. Thank you. This has been a long time in the works, and I wish everybody well moving forward. All right. Let's move on to our second item here. This is an informational item, a homelessness plan and services update. Um, Leona Rollins and Peter Hilly. Yes, as, as staffs come forward, I'll start off with, uh, with some background as, as they get settled in. Uh, as we noted in the memo, uh, this, is a, uh, this item is intended to provide background information to the commission uh, because next year, uh, one of your tasks is going to be working on, uh, on developing uh, our plan to address homelessness. Uh, it's an objective out of the housing element, which council adopted in January 2022, uh, and originally was going to occur in 2024, but uh, based on a recent survey, as well as the fact the county's updating their plan in 2023, uh, we asked council if it should be moved up, and, and they agreed. Uh, so we'll be working uh, as a partner with the county uh, as, as they amend their plan. Uh, we will be amending ours using the same consultant who thus will be uh, better able to make sure the plans work together as, as, as well as possible. Uh, we have Jen Harkey from the county who's gonna present the plan and give some information. And um, there's other information in the memo Happy to answer any questions about it, but if you don't have questions, I'm not gonna spend time going over it. Uh, overall, the goal is to lay out a foundation so that next year, uh, Planning Commission is able to tackle this, acknowledging the fact that we know that due to elections, there will probably be some new council members, but this introduction is recorded, and so whoever does end up in, in those seats will be able to come back uh, to this recording and still get the same type of, of uh, foundational information. With that, I hand it. Oh, also, want to take the opportunity to uh, introduce Leona Rollins, our Housing Services Manager of the new uh, Housing Services Group that was created as part of the housing element. I, I believe this is your first Planning Commission meeting? Yep. Um, do you want to give a brief intro? I, I didn't warn her, so. Um, Not wholeheartedly, he yeah. didn't. Um, yes, so as Peter mentioned, thank you so much, Peter. I'm Leona Rollins. I'm the new housing services manager for the city of Ventura. I've been here now for about three months. I have a bachelor's degree in sociology with an emphasis on ethnic and racial disparities and social inequalities. And I also have a master's degree in public administration. And I'm happy to be here. We're happy to have you. Welcome. And so with that, we'll hand it off to Jen. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, good evening, commissioners, uh, public uh, attendees, and city staff. My name is Jen Harkey, and I work out of the county executive office. Um, my a role in the county executive office is a program management analyst, but I also serve as the program director for the Ventura County Continuum of Care, so a couple of hats there. Uh, with the Continuum of Care, we receive a pretty significant amount of federal funding from the Housing and Urban Development at HUD. Uh, we also receive state dollars, um, grant dollars that serve the entire county. 
um, but also cities are eligible to apply for those funds as well as local nonprofits. Um, the majority of our funding goes to local nonprofits to support emergency shelters, permanent supportive housing, rapid rehousing, and street outreach teams. So um, I have a presentation for you, so we'll kind of go through what is the continuum. Continuum of care is supported under HUD funds. And um, like I mentioned, housing and urban development, they uh, fund over 400 continu continuums of care across the nation. Um, so ours, thankfully, serves one whole county. Um, you can only imagine in, in Los Angeles, it uh, looks a little bit different. They have multiple continuums of care within one county. Um, we do have a regional planning uh, body, so it's called the Alliance. We have several stakeholders and members throughout the county from various um, sectors that participate in these um, uh, initiatives and discussions. And then we also have a continuum of care board that uh, has several representatives from local city governments, um, businesses, nonprofits, and we also have our county executive office officer um, on that board. Um, real quick, so with the funding piece, you know, a lot of the funding that comes through the continuum of care for a lot of these programs, um, we have to look at our system as a whole to see where those gaps and those needs are every year. So it's really um, a strategic planning process that we go through. Uh, all of the funds that you see here with the current plan to prevent and end homelessness across the county uh, these initiatives are what stands in, in our plan currently. Uh, as Peter mentioned, we are currently, we have a, a request for proposals open actually until tomorrow. Uh, and the request for proposals is to have a consultant work with us. Um, and we are doing that in partnership with the city of Ventura and a few other jurisdictions that asked for some more specific goals and outcomes. Um, and so with our current plan, uh, it just highlights here what some of those initiatives are. Um, homeless prevention is really ever so important right now because we know the eviction moratorium ended. We have um, people who are on the verge of eviction or uh, may need that assistance with rental assistance, security deposits, utility payments, uh, and so some of that funding all comes through the county, through Human Services Agency. Um, some of our local partners also support us with um, the housing navigation. Uh, they have emergency shelters. So as many of you may know, we have Mercy House as the local shelter provider for the Arch shelter that's here in Ventura with 55 beds. There are other shelters in other jurisdictions as well, um, but the art shelter is unique um, because we have a county-city partnership for that particular um, shelter. And there are some others, uh, for example, in the city of Oxnard, 110 beds shelter, that's county-city partnership, and one that is currently in, in process in the city of Thousand Oaks. Um, so just looking to continue to expand some options 
Um, but the, the most important thing here, the majority of that funding goes through rapid rehousing dollars. Uh, rapid rehousing is focused on um, really rehousing people who have already lost uh, their homes or are currently in shelters. Uh, we also have supportive housing units um, throughout the county for those who are deemed chronically homeless. Um, they have to meet two criteria for that. Um, so chronically homeless means that they have a disability of some sort, means it could be mental, physical, developmental, substance use, and then the other being their length of time homeless as at least a year or longer. Um, so for supportive housing units, a lot of those HUD funds are really what, what support that countywide. And we have a lot of permanent supportive housing providers throughout the county like Mini Mansions, uh, Ventura County Behavioral Health, Salvation Army, and then the county. Uh, so this just gives you an idea of how many surveys are done across the county on, and we do a point in time count every year. It is a requirement of HUD for all of our funding. So in order for us to be eligible for funding like community development block grants, which the city and the county both get, um, continuum of care dollars, emergency solutions grant dollars, and then most recently, uh, we have some state funding called the Homeless Housing Assistance and Prevention Fund, also known as HAP. Um, and so all of those dollars, we, we rely on this point-in-time homeless count um, data that has to be reported to HUD. We also capture data within our own system called the Homeless Management Information System. But ultimately, this is a huge effort. We do it near the end of January every year. The exception to that was 2021 when we had a, a COVID outbreak um, pandemic. And so we will be doing another homeless count. And I don't know how many of you have participated in the past, but it's a great opportunity um, to interact with um, the population, uh, do surveys you know, out in the field, um, and kind of get to know uh, their stories behind uh, why people have lost their homes. So our homeless count um, increased by 25% since 2020. Um, that includes both sheltered and unsheltered. So we know we have a significant um, number of people that have a great need that uh, a lot of these individuals are in Project Room Key currently, and I'll talk to you about that in just a second. Um, but with, with the unsheltered population being around a 7% increase of that 25%. And this is just a breakdown for you of who's sheltered, who's in transitional housing versus unsheltered. Um, and when we're talking about those who are at risk of homelessness, um, we look at different systems. We look at our county office of education, look at the jail system, hospitals, our clinics. Um, so who's reporting as being um, maybe on the verge of homelessness or facing an eviction? Um, this gives you an idea by city. So as you can see, the greatest numbers are in Oxnard of Ventura. 
But I do call attention on this slide to the number that are in Project Room Key, for example. So Project Room Key was in response to COVID. Um, it is FEMA funded, and right now we are also providing some state dollars through the California Department of Social Services to help support um, some of those programs through the motel vouchers. Um, we have several motels that we've contracted with throughout the county in response to the COVID pandemic. Um, and these individuals have health conditions um, who are highly vulnerable to COVID and also seniors who are 65 and older. Our unsheltered survey results so as I mentioned, it was a point in time. It is self-reported information. Um, we do compare it to our system and homeless management information system. But the significance here is that uh, the increase in chronically homeless adults has um, gone up quite a bit since 2020. And um, this just shows us we have a large number of people who can qualify for permanent supportive housing. Um, one of the, the ways that we've been trying to address that is through the state home key funding. And home key is the motel conversions or building conversions or ways to rehab local, um, local buildings for housing purposes. And uh, supportive housing is a little bit different because like I explained with the chronic homeless population, um, people do have to have that documentation of a disability um, showing that they have both the length of time and also um, that uh, disability diagnosis. Another increase here was those um, fleeing domestic violence. And we have a new program that's just starting through the Coalition for Family Harmony. And we also work closely with Interface Children and Family Services and the Family Justice Center here in Ventura. So some of our current initiatives are really increasing crisis um, response beds. Uh, so that would be through our local shelters. We also have Project Room Key as motel conversions um, are coming along uh, to help us with transitions out of the motels and getting permanent placement for people. Improving access through what we call the coordinated entry system. Um, and so this is a no wrong door approach where someone can call 211 or any of our local um, providers to get connected to the system and get a referral for housing or shelter. And then the one-time state funding to build capacity. Um, I mentioned earlier about HAP funding. So I know the city has um, an interest and has submitted a, a letter of intent to our continuum of care to apply for homeless prevention dollars, um, knowing that we have a, a lot of people who may need that rental assistance over the next year. And then um, domestic violence I just mentioned, but just knowing that uh, there's increased funding from HUD and also the state to, um, to really address some of this need. So Pathways to Home is our coordinated entry system. We have over, um, we have 35 partnering agencies that contribute um, to the data that goes into the system and then also completes the assessments for each family or client who has a need. 
Um, all of these referrals get sent through uh, the HMIS system, and it helps us with data to determine what the needs really look like, what are the gaps in our system, where does that funding need to go. Um, for example, just over the past couple of years, we saw an increase in the number of transitional age youth, 18 to 24, um, and because of that data, uh, we had two home key projects that were successful in this last year. Uh, Mesa is one, and also Cost Pacifica. So they're expanding transitional housing beds for transitional age youth. Um, another population that we see just based on data is this growing senior population on fixed income um, that have a need. So trying to look at senior housing or shared housing, other, other types of creative housing. Um, so I kind of covered some of this, uh, but I guess the one thing to point out here is that we had 96 placements in supportive housing um, over this past year, which I think is significant because we really haven't had a large number of units that were built, although we have some in the pipeline that will be coming online over the next year or two. Um, so just looking at the transition, um, some of the way ways we were able to help more people get into supportive housing was what we call a move on strategy um, through our housing authorities. And so they look at those who are in supportive housing, have they had an increase in income or benefits or the ability to move on to a section eight or maybe another housing rental. Uh, and so we did have some movement because of that. Um, this is actually uh, just the pathways to home providers who can provide assessments by phone or in person. Um, these are the organizations that are engaged and do receive grant funding, can also help with connections to services. Um, and we also have the call 211 on this um, just to make sure that people know that's the easiest way to get connected. You can call from anywhere throughout the county, um, and so that, that way they know where to go for day services, food and security, um, shelter, anything, or street outreach teams. This gives you an idea of the number of housing resources that we are supporting through a lot of our HUD and state grants. Um, and I just wanna call attention to the inventory available, so you'll see that in the orange, um, those are VASH vouchers, Veteran Affairs Supportive Housing Vouchers for homeless veterans. Uh, we've been working on a by name list of all homeless veterans through the county, um, really trying to get them connected, but the greatest need here is that we don't have the housing stock um, and the rentals to really tie those vouchers to. And so we've been working with United Way, the Landlord Engagement Program, to help secure more units countywide. Um, and so that landlords and property managers understand that the vouchers are permanent and can support um, people long term. 
And then our housing challenges, uh, the rent costs. Uh, the rent costs here, of course, are higher um, than what our fair market rent um, is. And so what we, what we do a lot of times with our rapid rehousing dollars, for example, is that we do um, an analysis of rent reasonableness. Um, so we compare like three units within a certain uh, region or location um, to help pay a slightly higher amount for rent costs. Um, however, when you're looking at overall stability for families or, or individuals who need placement, um, having that rent cost that high makes it really difficult. Um, we have some flexible housing subsidies to help support people who may not be able to pay the full rent amount, um, but that is limited to really our state funding at the moment. Um, so we know we only have so much uh, over these next couple of years to kind of help sustain um, people in those homes, uh, but the fair market rate has really um, made it difficult for us to be able to use vouchers here locally. And then our continuum of care board recommendations. Um, these come out every year when we do our homeless count report and usually our homeless count, um, like I said, is the end of January. Uh, we'll be releasing uh, a flyer soon to help recruit volunteers for that. Um, but we have our report come out around April, and so as soon as we look at all the data and we do a full analysis, we determine what are the recommendations we want to look at for this next year. So achieving functional zero with homeless veterans, I mentioned using those BASH vouchers, so really being intentional about finding units. Um, ending unsheltered youth homelessness, I feel like we've made a pretty significant um, you know, progress with the home key projects that are coming online, especially for Tay, but still in need of some shelter specific for youth. Encouraging jurisdictions, um, here I am today, um, to help reduce the unsheltered number, um, but really encouraging jurisdictions who don't, do not have shelter at the moment. Um, but also looking at strategies um, for our street outreach teams and how to address um, those who are unhoused. And then reorganizing the Housing and Services Committee. So we have um, convened local stakeholders. Uh, so they're going to be starting in January and meeting on a quarterly basis um, to really look at uh, being more intentional with prevention specifically. And then formalizing a work group, I'm proud to say that this has started uh, with people with lived experience. And so we took some of our grant funding from the Continuum of Care and partnered with some uh, peer support um, and the National Health Foundation, uh, which operates recuperative care here in the county. Um, recuperative care is like shelter beds for people who are coming out of the hospital. Um, and need placement, but don't quite have the ability to go to a regular shelter um, and need some of that medical support to transition. So some of our new funding opportunities. Um, just recently, this last year, we submitted um, to HUD for an unsheltered homelessness grant um, 
in August is when we submitted. So some of our local partners helped apply. So like Many Mansions, uh, Mercy House. Uh, we've had you know a few uh, step up in Thousand Oaks is another new one that's converting a motel for 77 units. Um, so some of that is really intentionally um, providing units for those who are permanent, um, you need permanent supportive housing, chronically homeless, and need to have um, placement. With permanent supportive housing, it's tied to case management and supportive services, um, and that's how people retain that housing, is really wrapping around services um, in those locations. And then um, we have emergency solutions grant funding every year, uh, and that is uh, really limited. Um, so we are thankful to have some of the HAP funding to support local shelters and motel voucher programs. And then um, just recently, we released a request for proposals out of the county executive office for a building at 1400 Vanguard Drive in Oxnard. Um, and that is a county-owned building that we're looking to convert for recuperative care and permanent supportive housing. So here's my contact information. I also have cards here so you can get in touch with me um, and ask additional questions, but I, I'd be happy to, to answer questions now. Thank you. Thank you for that summary, uh, Ms. Harkey. Do we have questions uh, for anyone? Yes, please. Vice well, Chair. we have access. Yes, I can send it out, or somebody from the city can send it. Yeah, yeah, well, we'd be happy to send it to the planning commission. Great. I would like to ask you to pull up the slide that showed the the, uh, the counts uh, by city, if you would, please. <clears throat> Yes, thank you. As we know in this nation, homelessness is a very serious and it appears to be worsening problem. Um, and so in, in the state of California and uh, so too in Ventura County and the city has identified it as a major priority for the constituency for um, to be addressed. Um, I wanna bring to your attention that Ventura uh, and Oxnard are the leading cities, Oxnard being the largest city in the county with over 200,000 people inhabiting here. Ventura is half the size of Oxnard population-wise and yet nearly rivals it in the number of homeless. And I'd, I'd like to ask you if you could address some of the reasons why um, this appears to be the case for this particular city. and. Uh, what could be done, what is being done um, to address that, please. Yes, of course. Um, so I'm sure that you are all aware of the number of encampments that we have in Santa Clara River. Um, that is a huge issue um, that we are trying to address. We work really closely with law enforcement. Um, we have a backpack medicine team that goes out on a regular basis. Uh, we also have street outreach staff that go out on a regular basis as well, um, but that is a growing population. 
And so we just have to recognize that uh, we have had other areas that have been so-called cleared, right? So people have to move on from certain areas um, and typically will hide out in, in areas like that. Um, so just knowing that we have an increasing need that may be present there, um, we are being intentional about bringing services. Um, we are also working really closely with Mercy House um, to make sure that they have law enforcement beds available um, to both police and sheriff. Um, so when someone says, yes, um, I want to go to the shelter and today's the day, let's have a bed available um, and, and address um, whatever we can at that point. Um, we don't have enough shelter, um, although we need housing, right? And so you need, you need to have enough housing for people to transition out of shelter. Um, the permanent supportive housing units, that's the greatest need. If we had enough to address the population we have currently in shelters today, we could move uh, a significant number of people into supportive housing units and then have more people go into shelter. And so you have that movement through. Uh, we just don't have that today. Um, but addressing why, <laughs> uh, that's, it's, a hard, it's a hard thing to answer, although I would say the climate we have Right, the climate we're in here in Ventura County, um, it's nothing like the Midwest. Um, so in the Midwest, you know, in areas where they have snow and inclement weather on a constant basis, they have to have options for people. Um, and here people can get by. Um, so, you know, that it just, as far as the Santa Clara River and that area, um, we, we really just need to have more options. Um, and I would say the majority of individuals um, that are homeless on the streets, our law enforcement and our street outreach teams know them. Um, most, know most of them by name um, and are in our HMIS system and just waiting for that opportunity, right, to have shelter or housing. If I could add on to that a little bit, not not an expert, but uh, climate I think is a major issue, not just at our region, but um, the temperature and weather in some parts of the county are is much much different than in Ventura. We have the beach, we have the riverbeds, uh, and there's also we're the county seat, and this is not to criticize the services provided by the county in any way, but we have we have a hospital. We have a jail. That's probably a small factor, uh, but it's a factor. Good point. Um, I encourage anyone who is interested in this subject to go on a ride along with your local law enforcement and see how they spend their time during a normal workday. Much of it will be involved engaging with people that are on the street. Uh, one thing I find fascinating is that there are a great number of people that would like assistance and would like a way into a home and to begin uh, rebuilding their lives. But there are service-resistant people that want nothing to do with any of the services that you could people attempt to provide to them. And they're happy doing and living the way they are. And as unfortunate as it is, 
that's the reality of it. So, and unfortunately, in my opinion, and I'm no expert as well, um, those are the people that oftentimes cause the most number of problems, um, whether it's through substance abuse or mental illness. Um, uh, police engage with them, know them by name, and the recurrence of um, contacts and police arrests and taking people to the hospital uh, is breathtaking and the resources that we're expending to try and help these people is significant. And yet, as you can see, the numbers are going in the wrong direction despite all the best efforts. And there is no, this is very complex, there is no simple answer to it, but if more of us were to engage and show compassion and help the city and your local community in any way we can, perhaps we can make it better. So thank you very much. Yes, Commissioner Farkas. I have a question regarding motorhomes and trailers, and there's a lot of people who live in in those sorts of facilities. Um, I live in Midtown Ventura and walk my dog all the time, and, and sometimes they'll be there for weeks at a time. And um, have there been any sort of thoughts about areas where people who are living because they're somewhat housed, right? And they have everything that they, you know, that they have with them in, in, those, in those vehicles, pieces of property in the city or in the county where you could set up rather than them lining the roads and things like that, um, where they have proper dump facilities and things like that. So has that been looked at and yeah, thank you for the question. Uh, we have, uh, our county executive officer actually brought to um, the city managers a question about looking at safe parking options um, within each jurisdiction. Uh, we have not really received a response to that, uh, you know, that request. Looking at local local jurisdictions that could include, you know, unincorporated with the county as well. Um, so it's something we've looked into. We did a, a pilot project, um, and I don't know if you're all familiar, but it was pretty pretty early in 2020 or the mid 2020 on the avenue um, where there was like a, a permit parking area and we brought services to one location. Um, it works really well if you have safe parking um, in one location so that you can bring services there um, and you can interact with people on a regular basis. Um, we need more locations like that. Um, it, it did not continue after 2020, uh, mostly because of, of resources, right? We had to, we have to be intentional about running programs that way. Um, but we do have one safe parking, um, and that's actually uh, through the Salvation Army that's run here through a local church um, where people can park overnight um, and have access to facilities. Um, but yes, that is definitely something we are looking into. Yeah. Have you spoken to the state about it? Because I know there's state lands available and things like that. Have, has that been any established or any communications with the state? Yeah, so the state did propose a couple of parcels to us, um, but they're deemed unsafe. 
um, for that purpose, uh, mostly because of Caltrans and the areas that were proposed weren't, wouldn't work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if, if I could chime in again, the, the hope for this plan, now the county does their planning at, 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 at the countywide level. The hope for our plan is that, again, there's limited resources, there's more things that need to be done than we're going to have resources. So part of the plan will be getting planning commission's input, making a recommendation to council on what should be the priorities in our plan for the things that our resources are gonna to go to um, because whatever we do, there will be critics. And whatever we don't do, there will be critics. And thus, again, having a plan where everyone says, look, we might not be able to solve it, but we can make it much better by doing these things and that's what we're gonna do and that's what we'll measure and stuff. That's what we're hoping this plan's gonna be. Uh, right now, I think, in the memo I listed, a number of departments and, and, and groups in the community that are putting a lot of effort to it. And all of that's great, but there's no plan. There, you know, are we sure we're doing the right thing? I think we think we are. Um, anyway, that's just uh, something I hope you take away from this item is that the work in 2023 is, is gonna be about all the things that need to be done, how do we prioritize, which, which are the best you know, bang for the buck that we can, we can get the best out of the situation? Um, Commissioner Zucker, followed by Commissioner McCarty, followed by Vice Chair. Just, just a little clarification around the, the relationship between the, the kind of county's plan and the city's plan. Um, so Peter's right that we're, we're basically getting the presentation from the county to more for just informational you know, background in order to prepare us to work on the city plan next year, or, or were you also going to do a presentation about kind of what you foresee in the city plan? Yeah, so this is really educational, right, um, to help you understand sort of what is in the system currently, what kind of resources we have, uh, and then of course bringing back to you uh, at some point after we hire the consultant we start actually um, doing a deeper dive into all of the the resources we have but what are those gaps and needs um, supportive housing I wanted to make sure that all of you as commissioners understood what that really means because that is the greatest need that we have here yeah, absolutely couldn't agree more um, I'm also curious about the um, I know this went to the city council and there was kind of a, you know, well-attended and controversial city council meeting, you know, around the potential kind of pushing back of tenant protections in order to prioritize a homelessness plan. And I, you know, I, I was even a little unclear on kind of what the ultimate, you know, city council direction there, there was. And I, you know, my sense is that folks on city council said, well, tenant protection is a big part of preventing homelessness and we don't want to kind of push that back in order to, um, but but maybe you know Peter or Andy or you know or, or anyone you know from from city staff could you kind of give some clarity on how this fits in with the tenant protection conversation? Yeah. So at, at that meeting where uh, the the question staff raised is, given the survey results from the community on a statistically valid survey, saying far and away homelessness is is, is priority number one, do we want to? 
in the housing element, we originally had tenant protection first and then homelessness uh, as far as, as, as the plan efforts, should we switch them? Uh, during, that, during the dialogue, council did ask staff if there's a way to do something, uh, I don't wanna say stopgap, but something quick uh, to do, maybe call it a Band-Aid on the topic of, 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 of tenant protection for us to try to do that. Uh, there's gonna be a lot of reasons why that's gonna be challenging and uh, because it's a very controversial issue. And so we're gonna be talking with council more about that. There's also the reality that uh, with my departure, there's less capacity in the department to be doing all these things. And admittedly, the number of initiatives on our list is more than, that, more than can be done. Uh, and there needs to be a realistic conversation about, okay, they all, we want them all done um, which ones does council really want done first? Uh, and that will mean certain ones can't be done. Uh, so I think that's gonna come out of that dialogue. Uh, uh, I think that I answered your question. I think so. Okay. <laughs> question that maybe raises more questions, but I think that was about as good of an answer as we can get. Um, you know, I. I just want to share some comments since other others have, have shared some comments. You know, in my my perspective, you know, I, I couldn't agree more around the kind of need for supportive housing, and I think that that you know more broadly, housing is the the driver here that I think we need to understand. You know, drugs and alcohol have been around for a very long time and will be around for a very long time, right? Mental health and mental illness has been around for a very long time and will be around for a very long time, but. You know, if you look at what has really changed in our community in the last few years, that has really driven, you know, a, a you know fundamental shift in in the conditions creating homelessness. You know, from my perspective, it's the it's the housing crisis and the, the dramatic increase in rents, the dramatic shortage of of affordable units, um, and I think that's what we need to tackle. And so that's that's part of why I think to me, you know, as we've we've struggled to make staff capacity and and prioritize you know, doing things like our inclusionary housing ordinance, doing things like our tenant protection ordinance, you know, that, that I feel like, you know, we can, we can make a, a, a great homelessness plan, but if, if we're not addressing the issue of housing, those two things are so inextricably connected to go, you know, uh, we can only do one or the other, homelessness or housing. I mean, th those, are <laughs> those are really just, you know, two, two sides of the same coin. And so, um, you know, I'd, I'd really encourage us to, to do what we can. I, I do think there's ways sometimes with housing to go we may not get this policy perfect, but maybe we can, you know, take another cities as a template. Say this is going to be a temporary thing. You know, two years we're going to take whatever Oxnard did and just copy paste, <laughs> slap the name Ventura in there, and it's only going to last for two years. And say, all right, over the next two years we're going to work on refining this and seeing what works and seeing what's, you know. But um, you know, I, I'm I'm all for diving in and and uh, trying to trying to figure out solutions to to whether it's stopgap, whether it's long-term, but um, yeah, just, just wanna make sure we, we are really being laser-focused on the housing issue. Thank you. Commissioner McCarty. Jen, thank you for the presentation. Um, if someone were to wanna get involved with the homeless count in January, how would we go about that? Yeah, so we just had our Continuum of Care Board meeting just before this Planning Commission. Uh, so they just approved uh, the actual date. Uh, it will be held on January 24th. Um, so 
I will be creating a flyer and working with United Way to help us recruit volunteers. Um, United Way has a platform called Volunteer Ventura County, and uh, that will be the way that we have volunteers sign up. And I will definitely make sure that it comes over to all of you um, so you can help us share, share the information. Um, it is a, a huge effort. We have about 500 volunteers countywide uh, that help us in all the different jurisdictions. Um, I am a city of Ventura resident, although I always end up counting in Oxnard because <laughs> the, the need is so great. Um, but whatever, uh, whatever you know, you all could offer as far as support goes and spreading the word, we'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Vice Chair, did you have a question or comment? I, I do. Thank Great. you. Um, one, my first one is for Peter. Where are we on the inclusionary housing ordinance? Coming back to the number of initiatives and available staffing, um, clearly not where we want to be. That's going to be one of the conversations that have to be had. Uh, we do have the updated information now from the consultant, and it's just a matter of uh, staff availability to bring it forward. Thank you. My, my next one, thank you very much for the presentation. You are a wealth of information. I was impressed. Um, just, just kind of your personal opinion based on the work you do. I mean, I, I feel like the right now are, you know, the, the housing ordinances and the things that the state have put in place are inadequate. And, and so, you know, what are, what are all the means of addressing this gap in the in the permanent housing that is so desperately needed? Yeah. So I know I know that there. It's unfortunate with the eviction moratorium uh, ending. We've had quite a few calls for service with homeless prevention uh, and the need to keep people housed. Um, and so just the legal side of all of that. Um, the Housing Rights Center, Center has been a contracted partner of ours uh, where they get um, inundated with calls. Um, so really working on the prevention side is so important. Um, but the need for extremely low and uh, low income housing units is a huge need. I mean, when we're looking at the population that we serve here, you know, knowing that we have transitional age youth, 18 to 24, that really need placement. I mean, these are college college kids, um, or our you know our daughters, our our you know cousins, whoever they are, um, that have this need for housing. Um, there is nothing that is affordable um, currently, and we have a lot of new nurses, firefighters, you know. Uh, public service employees that also can't afford the rent costs here. Um, so just the extremely low to very, you know, the very low income units are really lacking here. So that's a huge crisis issue. Um, and so whatever we can do to help support bringing more units online, and I know the community development department um, through the city and also the county has been really working on pushing some of those forward. Um, I would also say with the initiative um, being brought to council um, to make sure that we have some sort of ordinance or something in place um, 
I know there's a balance there, right? Because you have local landlords um, and property managers who also have a need. Uh, and so it has to be a balance, um, but there really needs to be um, something in place to help prevent homelessness there. Okay. Um, thank you, Leona and Jan. Appreciate your comments and information. Um, now it's time for the public to speak, so I'm going to open the public hearing. Uh, Madam Clerk, are there speakers that wish to address this issue? Chair Comden, we do have one public speaker, that is Judy um, Alexander. Come on up, Judy. Hi. I'm Judy Alexander, and I am currently chair of the Ventura Social Service Task Force. That is an advocacy group and an educational group that addresses issues of homelessness, specifically in the city of Ventura. We work with the city, we work with the county, we work with individuals, we work with nonprofit agencies coming together to address those issues. And I'm here to let you know during this transition, not only of staff, but from going to council to the planning commission, that the social service task force is committed to being a partner and in working to address the variety of issues. Some of the issues that we have identified as gap issues in addition to housing, just to be clear, it's a $100,000 income for a family of four qualifies for affordable housing. Think of who is excluded from being able to afford housing in our city and the flight of people because they can't live here. The seniors who have always lived here and worked here is one of the fastest growing populations of people experiencing homelessness as their rents have increased, they're on the street. They've never been homeless before in their lives. And unless there's a housing stock, they become the chronically homeless, least able to figure out how to adjust. We talk about people being resistant. They might be after they've lived in fear for one, two, 10, 10 12 years. I would encourage you, as you go along on the police ride along, to also go visit the county one-stop programs where nonprofits and individuals and volunteers provide services at one place. And in Ventura, it's at the old public health building on Loma Vista on Tuesday mornings. Please come. You can see the people that I saw there yesterday. A man who proudly announces, I'm schizophrenic, I just got my diagnosis, now what do I do? And in talking with him and processing with him, realized he probably has TB. Because in asking questions, yeah, he was coughing up blood, and yes, he had a fever, and yes, he's lost weight. But there's been nothing. So the need to address the trauma of each individual and to understand that not all people are like us that have the capacity to make healthy, wise decisions. And so they make poor decisions. And they need people to come alongside them and walk with them as they're able to learn to make decisions. We're not going to solve the problem unless we have a supply of housing and meet some of the gaps that we can do in the meantime. And some of those gaps are hygiene, Portland loos, laundry, storage facilities, and related issues. Thank you very much. 
Thank you, Judy. Madam Clerk, do we have any other speakers? Chair Condon, that concludes our public speakers. All right, very good. I will close the public hearing. Commission, do you have any further comments on this topic? Questions for staff? Yes, please, Commissioner Davis. I did have a question. The, um, you said that there's a consultant that's, or the, it's, you're getting everything tomorrow. The, you'll be reviewing the consultant applications starting. It's tomorrow that you said was due, I think. What I guess the, in general is the timeline to potentially see this move forward and when maybe we would see something coming back, would you be sharing something? Yeah, so with the consultant applications, we'll be going through a review pro process through um, early December. Um, we are hoping to get approval uh, by hopefully mid-December um, through the Board of Supervisors. Um, and so that's the channel we need to take through the county. Um, once that gets determined, we're hoping they'll start by January 1st, um, maybe January 2nd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, working with uh, local cities as well. Um, so it, it is definitely a coordinated effort, um, and Leona and her team will be part of that review board as well. Um, so maybe maybe we'd be hearing from Le we'd get an update on after they get started on what the maybe outline schedule of what the efforts are and and when maybe at that time we hear like what their kind of strategic yes, plan is. Yes, because of course they're gonna be they're gonna be working on the actual you know plan, but also there's gonna be you know community meetings. We're gonna be talking to stakeholders, individual lived experience. So once we get like a timeline of like how things are gonna play out, then of course we'll come back to the planning commission and give you guys that update. Thank you. Any further comments? All right, now we move on to staff communications. Is there anything staff would like to communicate to us? Thank you, Chair Condon. I do not have any staff communications unless Peter does. Well, I guess I'll communicate. Um, as I've mentioned to a couple of you and in the news and such, uh, this will be my last meeting uh, with you. Um, I'm going to be moving on and um, my family is actually going to be moving back to the Bay Area. Um, want to say that uh, enjoyed my time here. Uh, I think you have all done very well for the community and I wish you best of luck moving forward. Uh, Netta will be filling my seat uh, and uh, hope uh, that you give her the same support that you gave me. Uh, and um, I'm confident with, with the team that we've got uh, that we'll still be able to keep moving forward on, on these initiatives. Thank you, Peter. I was gonna make that announcement, but uh, your last day with the city is next week. When is that? My last uh, day at City Hall is gonna be the council meeting on Monday. Very good. Well, it's been a uh, robust uh, number of years that you've been with us um, through quite a bit of tumult uh, nationally and in the city and so many things going on and so many balls to juggle. Uh, you and your staff have done a yeoman's job of trying to keep the ship in the right direction and uh, steady because there's a lot of turbulence. And so we thank you for your service and wish you the very best in the future. 
I think I speak on behalf of all the members of the commission. Um, all right, so from here, um, what do we have expectations for our next meeting? Uh, so we do plan to have a meeting in December. Okay. Probably early, the, the first. There's only the one two. scheduled meeting in December. Very good. Okay. Anything for the good of the order, commissioners? Yes. I'd like, hope everyone has a wonderful Thanksgiving since we won't be back till December. And um, Peter, I, I, I echo Chair Comden's, you know, remarks. It's It's been great having you here. You're my second community development director that I've worked with while I've been on the commission. You've done a great job and I have the utmost um, confidence in Netta to um, take the wheel um, after you leave. But congratulations and good luck and we wish you the best. So and thank you everybody. All right, we do have a lot to be thankful for. Commissioner Zucker. I just echo thank, thank you Peter for, for your work and your service with the city and, and especially for so many of us who were brand new on the planning commission, you know, when we, we came in and, you know, uh, helping work through us on some, some very, very complex and, and challenging issues over the last few years. So, uh, and uh, yeah, looking forward to, to continue to work with you, Nana, in the new role and uh, yeah, have, have the most confidence in you as well. Thank you. Anyone else? All right, with that, we'll close the, the, uh, the meeting. Thank you for your time tonight.